I was going to say while you were um, turning there that I'm not usually a public speaker, so and I usually tend to uh, drop off a little bit or mumble a little bit, but I don't think you'll have too much trouble hearing me by the sounds of things. <laughs> now, um, so but if you do, don't be shy. Just sort of wave your hands and just let me know that I'm going a bit quiet. Um, equally, if you're not enjoying the sermon this morning. I would ask that you simply just smile. (laughs) And then that way I'm blissfully unaware. Or I'm looking at all these smiling faces and I'm starting to wonder, (laughs) are they really enjoying it or not? Okay, the first four chapters, uh, no, the first four verses of 1 John 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness, and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. Let's open in prayer. Lord, we just come before you this morning as ordinary people. Lord, we are ordinary people, but Lord, we have an extraordinary God. And Lord, we just, in that sense, just want to come here today and just worship you and to praise you and to honour you with everything that we have. And similarly, we just come to your word this morning, Lord, and we pray that um, we'll just have hearts that will be open to, to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, the opening four verses of this letter are really a preface to the entire letter. In these verses, we find the reason why John wrote this letter to the church. He doesn't mess around. He immediately launches into the core of his message. And as we'll see, that's the sort of guy that John is. There is no mucking around with him. This morning we're going to take a look at John and what was going on that prompted him to put pen to paper or quill to parchment or whatever it was that he did. I know it wasn't fingers to keep at. The main thrust of the message this morning is that John was a witness. He was a first-hand witness to the life and ministry of Jesus. And while the thrust of the message is on John as a witness to Christ, the main focus will be on the implications of what he witnessed and what he witnessed was the word of life. So who is John? What do we know about him? Well, there's quite a bit that we can find from Scripture. The book of 1 John is a letter that John the Apostle wrote to the early church. And he not only wrote this letter, but he also wrote the Gospel of John, the other letters that are attributed to him, and the book of Revelation. And it's helpful for us to spend a few moments delving into John's background and his character. And the reason why it's helpful is because it gives us a bit of an insight into why he has written this letter to the church and where he was coming from. So what do we know about John? 
Well, we know that he was the brother of James, who was a disciple and an apostle of the early church. Uh, other things we know is that his mother's her name was Salome, but she was also Mary's sister. So what this meant was John was a first cousin to Jesus. And the implication of that in today's scripture is that John not only witnessed Jesus throughout his ministry, but he would have known Jesus probably throughout his whole life. So he had a picture of what Jesus was like before his ministry and during his ministry. His father Zebedee was a fisherman and he was thought to be quite a well-to-do fisherman as well. And it was a bit of a family business. John and James were also fishermen. Well, at least they were until one day when Jesus came along and called them to be his disciples and called them to follow him. And what did they do? They left Zebedee and all the hired hands there at the boat and just followed Jesus. The fact that John was a disciple gives us a lot of insight into the scripture. He spent about three years with Jesus throughout his ministry. He sat under Jesus' teachings and he witnessed his miracles and he knew him personally. And we'll expand on this a little bit later on. We see throughout the time that John spent with Jesus that he was close to Jesus. Quite often in his gospel, John refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved. And after Jesus died, John was one of the early church leaders. It was in this role as one of the apostles that he wrote this letter. Now one of the more interesting references we have to John in scripture is found in Mark 3.17. And this was when Jesus was up on a mountainside and he was appointing the twelve disciples. And this is the description that he gave to James and John, the two brothers. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Isn't that quite an awesome sort of name to be given? Sons of thunder. And I can just imagine after this little incident that the uh, disciples were just sitting around and there's James and John's glowing, sons of thunder, you know, isn't that awesome? And I can just imagine Simon just piping up and said, well, Jesus gave me a name as well. They looked to him. What name did he give you, Simon? Uh, Peter? <laughs> I'm pretty certain that Peter would have pointed out that his name means rock or stone. So, um, well, I better add that because I know there's about three or four Peters around here and I don't want to be ducking out and shooting off straight away afterwards. <laughs> we'll give you sons of thunder. Okay, I believe this new name that was given to James and John spoke of their character. They were passionate, fiery, no-nonsense sort of guys. And we see this illustrated in Luke 9 uh, when a Samaritan village would not welcome Jesus. And this is the response of John and James. Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? I'm pretty certain Jesus would have just, well, hang on you guys, just hold off. And we also see some of this characteristic coming through in John's writing of this letter. He quite often talks about false teachers in this letter and he refers to them as antichrists, as liars and children of the devil, which is very strong language indeed. This guy isn't pulling any punches and John is what I call 
a real joker. He called a spade a spade. He didn't mince words. And all of this characteristic was born out of his passion for Christ, his passion for the gospel, his zeal for protecting the church and the people who individually made up the church. Now at the time of writing this letter, John is believed to have been based in Ephesus and was overseeing a large number of churches. It is also generally accepted that he was advanced in years. This letter is thought to have been written some 50 to 60 years after the time of Christ. So he was pretty much an older guy. If you do the maths, it works out he's probably within the 70s and 80s. However, even though he was an older guy, that spark was still there. So what's up? Why did John feel the urge to write this letter to the believers of the time? Well, we find the answer if we flip forward a few verses um, in, in his letter. So if we just flip forward to chapter 2, verse 26, and there we find what prompted John to write. He said, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. There were people who were trying to lead the church astray. And we'll look at these people in a moment. But this situation would have certainly fired John up. And also, if we turn to 1 John 5.13, we find the second reason why he wrote this letter. So the first reason was the purpose or the uh, motivation for him to write it. The second is where his concern was, where his heart was for the people. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John wanted to reassure the early Christians of their salvation. The false teaching that was present pointed the people away from Christ. They pointed them away from Christ being the only way to God and this was causing confusion and doubt. So we see that John's purpose for writing this letter was twofold. First of all, it was to warn about the false teaching and to counter it. And second of all, he wanted to give the believers an assurance of their salvation. So why was John so fired up about false teaching? Why is it so dangerous? Well, false teaching, unlike a direct attack on our faith, isn't and a direct attack as such. It is more of a sneaky sort of attack on our faith. False teaching can often have some sort of semblance to the real thing. It can be like a covert attack. False teaching often uses scripture that is taken out of context or can have some of God's truth within it. And what are some of the results of false teaching? Well, in the very least, it can cause confusion. It can cause us to get confused about the things of God. From that, it could lead us on to be distracted from the call of God or hinder us from being in the will of God. And it's very extreme. False teaching can lead us away from God because we trade the truth of God and we chase after a falsehood. So that's why it's, it's quite dangerous. So who were these people who were trying to lead the believers astray? Who were these false teachers? Well, they were the Gnostics. I can just sort of imagine you all sitting there thinking, yeah, the Gnostics, that's right, those guys. The church of John's day was confronted with an early form of Gnosticism. 
John wrote this letter to expose their false teaching and to give the believers an assurance of their salvation. And if we take a look at the Gnostics and what they were up to, it, it also gives us a little bit more of an insight into the scripture that we're reading today. Now, the Gnostics' central teaching or their central belief is that the spirit is entirely good and matter is entirely evil. Sort of sounds okay. But where this leads on to is that what they say is that your body is matter, your body is physical, therefore it is entirely evil. And God is spirit, therefore he is entirely good. Again, it's sort of, yeah, okay. But that's from there on, it starts getting into a, a little bit of a tricky area. They believed that salvation was achieved by escaping from your body, because your body was evil. And how did you achieve this salvation? Well, you had to have special knowledge. And that's usually a good sign of some sort of false teaching, that you have to have a special knowledge, that there is a new enlightenment or a new move of the Spirit or something like that. And the term special knowledge, um, the word for it is gnosis. So that's where the term Gnosticism comes from. And, and it goes on. They, the Gnostics deny Christ's humanity and they deny it because the physical body is evil. So how could Jesus be, be good as well as being evil? And they explain it away by a couple of ways. One, one theory that they come up with is that God or Christ only appeared to have a body. He was like a vision or something. And the second theory that they came up with was that there's the divine Christ and there was the man Jesus. And the man Jesus grew up as a man and then at the time of baptism, the divine Christ came upon him and then was with him throughout his whole ministry and then left him before he died. So these are just a couple of the things that they came up with. A um, bit of the offshoot of their beliefs was the way that they treated their bodies and there was a bit of a contrast here. Some of them would treat their bodies harshly. Because your body was evil, they would self-harm themselves some way. I, I haven't looked into how or why or what, but that was what they did. But they would self-harm themselves. And Paul direct, deals with this directly in Colossians 2. Now the contrast was that they would also, some of them would live in total pleasure. And their theory was, it doesn't matter because my body's evil anyway, so it doesn't matter what I do to it. So they would live in pretty much loose living and total immorality. Okay, now that we have a bit of a background on John and why he wrote this letter. Let's reread the scripture that we might just see some of the motivating factors coming through in John's writing. Remember that John wrote this letter to counteract false teaching and to give the believers an assurance of their salvation. From verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father 
and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ, and these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. So if we go to the very first words in verse 1, that which was from the beginning, that which was from the beginning, this we proclaim about the word of life. When we look at the term, the word of life, the term word, in this instance, speaks of revelation. And when we look at the term life, it is a reference to Jesus. And we will come back and just expand on that a little bit later. In this case, we read the word of life as the revelation of life, or the revelation of Jesus who is life, or in other words, the word of life in this instance speaks of the revelation of Christ or the gospel. So when John uses the phrase from the beginning in relation to the word of life, what he is saying is that the gospel hasn't changed since it was originally proclaimed until the writing of this letter. As I mentioned earlier, it was some 50 or 60 years after the time of Christ that John wrote this letter. In that time, the message of the gospel hadn't changed. Why was he emphasising this? Well, there was a new teaching which was infecting the church. Remember, he wrote this letter in part to expose the false teaching of the Gnostics. And this is further evidence throughout the letter. In chapter 2-7, John writes this, Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one which you have seen which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message that you have heard. Later on in chapter 2, in verse 24, See what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. In chapter 3, This is the message that you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. And in his second letter, He writes this, And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands, as you have heard from the beginning. His command is that you walk in love. So the gospel was unchanged for that 50 to 60 year period. It hadn't changed since it was first proclaimed. And guess what? It is still unchanged some 2,000 years later. The gospel, the message of the cross has not changed. New or false teaching didn't end at the time of John. I don't think there's much Gnosticism around, but there are other versions of it when other false teachings that have come and tried to attack our faith in the church. We must remember the message of the gospel is unchangeable. John continues this thought throughout his letter. Jesus is the life. Three times in this morning's passage, John refers to Jesus as life. He talks about the word of life, which is the revelation of Christ. He tells us that their life was manifested, that he became in human form. And he tells us that the eternal life was with the Father. It is not uncommon for John to use the term life when referring to Jesus. In fact, between this letter and his gospel, John uses the term 44 times. And we're just going to take a 
brief look at some of these passage, passages uh, just so they can add to this description of Jesus. In John 1.4 In him was life and the life was the light of men. John 11.25 Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life and he who believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe? It's a good question for us. Do we believe? And another sort of well-known scripture to us, John 14.6 Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on you do know him and you have seen him. Jesus is the life. Last week we looked at what our condition was before God intervened for each one of us. We looked at Romans 5 and we realised that we were still sinners, we were enemies of God, we were slaves to sin, we were hopeless and helpless and we were spiritually dead. And do you remember the illustration that Calphane used for this? He used the illustration that we were spiritually flatlining. And how do we, or how did we get out of this state of spiritual death? Well, we didn't do anything. God had a plan. He sent his son. And his son died for us and took our sin on himself. Jesus is the light. Is there any other way to Jesus? No. Jesus is the way, the only way, the truth and the life that counteracts our state of spiritual death. John goes on to say Jesus is eternal life. If we were to do a survey and ask people, when did Jesus live? Probably the most common answer we would get is, oh, around about the year zero, 2,000 years ago. And that would probably be quite a correct answer. But a more correct answer is to say that Jesus has always lived. And he always will. Jesus is the eternal life that is referred to in verse 2. And we declare to you that the eternal life which was with the Father and manifest to us. The eternity of Jesus is also reflected in other scriptures. If we look at the first verse of John 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So here you see that term again, the term Word, and in this case it is referring directly to Jesus. Uh, In the case of 1 John it's talking about the revelation of Jesus. Okay, and even if we go right back to Genesis, to the very first verse in the Bible, it says here, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. How did God create the earth and the heavens? He spoke forth the word. So we can see right there, right at the beginning of time, there was God the Father, God the Son, who was the Word, and also the Spirit of God. And even in John's letter, we can read about this. In First John 2.13, I write to you fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. 
Note also that in all of these references, Jesus was with the Father. In John 1, the Word was with God. In Genesis, we see God the Father, the Word and the Spirit all working together in creation. In 1 John 1, verse 2, the eternal life was with the Father. And 1 John 1, 3, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. So what about now? Where's Jesus now? Is he in the Caribbean putting his feet up? No, Romans 8.34 tells us, Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Jesus is eternal. The life was made manifest. So we're moving on to the third part of, um, or the third reference to Jesus' life. The life was made manifest. Some versions say that the life appeared. The term manifest means to reveal or to make visible that which was hidden. God revealed himself in human flesh. He who is eternal became an historical person. He was fully God and fully man. John witnessed this manifestation of Christ. He heard with his ears, he saw it with his eyes and he touched with his hands. Jesus was real. He was physical and he was tangible. Christ was not an image or a vision or, or anything like that as the Gnostics claimed. He was a real person. The reality of Jesus was witnessed by John. He heard him, he saw him, he looked upon him and he touched him. So if we look a little bit deeper into what John witnessed, we see in verse 1, that which we have heard, John had heard the Lord speak. He would have been there first hand to hear Jesus' sermons, his parables. And not only that, Jesus also spoke to the disciples privately, giving them instruction and giving them counsel. So, yeah, Jesus was their teacher and as such he would have been instructing them in that. John was also present with Jesus throughout his ministry on a daily basis. So he would have heard Jesus speaking daily and no doubt the things that he heard would have greatly impacted him. That which we have seen which our eyes with our sorry, that which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon. Not only did John hear Jesus speaking, but he also witnessed Jesus' actions. And this hit me recently when we were looking at the um, at the events surrounding Jairus' daughter, as described by Luke. Jairus came to Jesus and pleaded with Jesus to come to his house to heal his daughter. His daughter was very sick. By the time Jesus arrived, the girl had died. Now, what did Jesus do? He took the girl's parents and he took three of his disciples. And three disciples he took aside with John, James and Peter. Now, I'm pretty certain it's James, the brother of John, so he took a side with him, the sons of thunder and the rock. So it sounds like he's sort of gone in there with a wrestling team or something. <laughs> anyway, he took Jairus' parents and his three disciples with him and they went into the house. Jesus took the girl by the hand and told her to get up. And the girl came back to life again. Now, Luke tells us after that that the girl's parents were astonished. 
Now, it doesn't tell us, but I'm pretty certain it's a given, the three disciples would have been just as equally astonished. I know if I'd been there, I would have been sort of jaw, jaw dropped down on the ground, the eyes popping out, and I'd be thinking, whoa, what's just happened here? You know, sometimes when we read scripture, and I'm, I'm a little bit guilty of this, um, we get a little bit blasé about some of the things that are in there, or we don't sort of really fully recognise them. It's, it's, it's a bit like this. Um, Jesus healed the sick. He raised the dead. Jesus walked on water. Jesus stopped at the dairy and bought some milk. And sometimes when we read the acts of Jesus, we can sometimes just sort of gloss over them. And I'm not sure whether it's a um, maybe just a thing of our culture. We're sort of surrounded by all sorts of movies and all sorts of media. And we say things like, Jesus raised a girl from the death. And, um, you know, we sort of react, well... I saw Harry Potter do that on Star Wars 6, The Return of Iron Man. And we just, yeah. The point is this. Jesus performed many miracles and did some pretty amazing things. Witnessing these things would really grab your attention. John saw these things that Jesus did and these things displayed the reality of who Jesus was. He was God he was Messiah and Saviour. Jesus witnessed Jesus, sorry, John witnessed Jesus' power over demons, his power over disease, nature and death. He witnessed how Jesus had authority to forgive sins and grant eternal life. And not only did the disciples see the things that Jesus did, but we also had that little reference there that they looked upon Jesus. And that talks to us about how they would have experienced his nature, how they would have seen him as a person as a, and his characteristics. They would have seen his example that he set first hand. He was their teacher and their mentor. And remember in John's case, he also knew who Jesus was before his ministry, before that time of those three years or so that they were all close together. So he would have had a comparison and he would have seen the consistency in his character coming through. And that, that our hands have touched. John fully experienced the incarnation of Jesus. We can read of how John leaned against Jesus at the time of the Last Supper. As mentioned before, Jesus was a real, tangible, tangible and historical person. And at the same time, he was entirely God. John and the others reacted, interacted with him on a daily basis throughout his three-year ministry. So what is the significance of John being an eyewitness to the reality of Christ? Well, there's two things. In the first case, it gives credence to John's ministry as an apostle and an early leader of the church. When John bears witness to the word of life, when he speaks and teaches of the gospel, he knows what he is talking about. He has experienced firsthand the life and he personally knew Christ. The other significant thing, which is in context with our text today, is that John directly refutes the false teaching of these false teachers, the Gnostics. They were saying that Christ could not be fully God and fully man because anything that is physical is evil. The Gnostics denied the humanity of Christ and came up with different theories about Jesus. 
He only appeared to be real. The Spirit of God only came upon the man Jesus for a specific time. What did John say about these things? He said, no, no, don't listen to these guys. I have heard Jesus with my own ears. I have seen him with my own eyes. I have touched him and he is who he says he is. Don't be fooled by this new teaching. So John was privileged to experience the presence of Jesus. He was privileged to spend all that time with him. Did he keep this experience as a private one? Was it something that he just kept and sort of mulled over in his old age? No. He spoke of what he had experienced and what it all meant. His privilege transformed into a responsibility as an apostle to bear witness to the truth and to proclaim eternal life through Christ. After Jesus rose again, he gathered the remaining 11 disciples and commissioned them. And this is what he commissioned them to do. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So what is the purpose of doing this? What is the purpose of proclaiming the word of life? Why should the gospel be proclaimed? Well, we see from our text in verses 3 to 4 that the purpose of proclaiming the word of life is twofold. In the first instance, it is to the aim of it is to bring us into fellowship. Fellowship with the church and also fellowship with God. The second purpose is to give us the fullness of joy. These equate to the assurance of salvation that John was trying to encourage the believers with. We look firstly at fellowship. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. The purpose of the proclamation of the Gospel is fellowship and this means fellowship in its broadest sense. And in its broadest sense it includes reconciliation to God through Christ. So it's talking about having fellowship with God. And this is sort of twofold. There's salvation and then there's our ongoing relationship with Christ. And we'll expand on those things a little bit later in application. The second thing that fellowship encompasses is church fellowship or Christian fellowship or fellowship with other believers. And this fellowship that we've talked about is highlighted by Jesus when he prays for all believers after the Last Supper. And we find that in John 17, verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. In that case, he just finished praying for the disciples, so that's who he's referring to. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So that included who he was about to pray for was all those that were going to be touched by the messages of the apostles. So that's all those that would have heard them directly and it also refers to us today because we still have that message here with us today. 
I pray for all for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. So the emphasis in fellowship is on fellowship with one another and fellowship with God. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Some versions read this part of scripture as we write this to make our joy complete. So we have this thing where they talk about our joy or your joy. The original term was inclusive of both the author and the recipients of the letter. So when he talks about the joy, it is for all believers. So where does this joy come from? Well, the answer again is in our text. The joy comes from the reality of Christ, the real Christ that John witnessed, that he heard, that he saw and he touched. The joy comes from the saving truth of the Gospel, the Gospel which is unchanging, the word of life which was declared from the beginning. And this joy comes from our fellowship with God and with other believers. John 15.11 says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Psalm 16.11, I particularly like this scripture. You shall show me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of what? The fullness of joy. At your right hand is pleasure forevermore. So in summary, what I've done is I've just come up with my own summary. So it's all in Michael speak. Okay, so don't take this as, I haven't put it up on the thing because um, I didn't want people writing it all down and, hey, this is one John. No, let's go back to the original scripture. But what I'll bring is my summary which um, sort of explains the scripture to me personally. So hopefully it will help... um, summarise it for you as well. The message of the Gospel is unchanged. Jesus is eternal and he manifested in human form. John and the other apostles experienced Jesus on a daily basis and as such were qualified to testify to his incarnation and proclaim eternal life through Jesus Christ. The purpose of this proclamation is the insurance of salvation. This comprises of fellowship with God and one another and leads to the fullness of our joy. The reason John wrote these words was to expose false teachers and to assure the believers of their salvation. So we come to the application part of today's word. And what I've done is for the application is just sort of split it up into three questions or three challenges. The first one is, am I experiencing the fullness of fellowship? And I've broken this down into two areas. Am I experiencing the fullness of fellowship with God? And that includes both salvation and our ongoing relationship with Him. And the second part was, am I in full fellowship with other believers? 
So going back to the first one, is Christ a reality in my life? Do I know him or do I just know of him? Romans 5 makes it clear that if we are without Christ, we are spiritually dead. We are spiritually flatlining. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. Jesus is the only way to God. Nothing else can work. And I was sort of reminded of a, uh, a song that we used to sing and probably anyone under the age of 20 might not remember this one. Um, and it was called You Can't Get to Heaven and there was all sorts of different verses. And there was a verse like You can't get to heaven on a Yamaha. You can't get to heaven on a Yamaha because a Yamaha won't go that far. And there was other ones like you can't get to heaven on a bottle of gin. You can't get to heaven on a bottle of gin because a bottle of gin's got the wrong spirit in. And it was things like that. But the point of the song was that there's all these other things and these other ways that people can try to get to heaven, but there's only one way. And again we come back to John 14.6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. Jesus is the life. We can only become spiritually alive because Jesus took on himself the sin that was keeping us separated from God. And what can we do about changing this if we're in this situation? Well, Scripture tells us that we need to repent and be baptised and the Holy Spirit will come upon us. So, I'd encourage you, if you're in this situation, talk to someone about it. Talk to one of the elders or talk to a mature Christian that you know well and trust. The second part of being in fellowship with God is am I pursuing a relationship with him? Am I doing things like prayer, reading his scripture, worshipping him, or am I simply spending or am I simply spending time with him as well? As we seek God more on a personal level, we will grow spiritually, we will mature, and we are in closer fellowship with him. The other aspect of fellowship is Christian fellowship. God calls us to be one. If we pull ourselves away from church fellowship and Christian fellowship, we will grow cold. And, you know, we can still attend church, but pull ourselves away from Christian fellowship. We need each other. We need to remain in fellowship. A great way to remain in fellowship or to be in fellowship is to be involved in a small group. It's in these groups that we can get to know each other one-on-one and develop relationships where we are looking out for each other. Okay, the second question. Do I know the word of life? Do I know what the word of God says? Do I know what the gospel is? Do I study the word of God? You know, it's very hard to spot a fake if we don't know what the real thing looks like. I can go uptown and, this isn't very likely, have $1,000 in my back pocket. In fact, it's extremely unlikely. (laughs) But I can go uptown and I can go and find a, what I think is a Rolex real flash watch. But the problem is, is I could be taken for a ride very easily because I wouldn't have a clue what a real Rolex looks like. I could end up being sold a $5 knockoff and spend heaps of money. It is the same with the Gospel and the Word of God. We need to know what the real thing looks like 
so that we can recognise when the false things come along. The other night in youth group we were speaking about spiritual disciplines and how important they are in developing our relationship with God and our Christian maturity. Spiritual disciplines include such things as prayer, worship, fellowship and studying God's word. So how do we go about studying God's word? Well, a good place to start is to read it on a regular basis. To go deeper, it can also help to find a recognised study guide or read books by recognised authors. These can help add clarity to scripture. And again, you'll think I'm on a um, bit of a track record here, another really great way is to get involved with a Bible study group. In small groups we can bounce things off fellow Christians and draw on their knowledge and understanding. Whatever we do, the main thing is that we get into God's Word. There are many benefits to studying God's Word. We get to know God and His character better and we can grow in our faith and be encouraged. And also we are more likely to spot false teaching when we see it. And the third challenge question in our application is am I bearing the witness to the word of life? John testified to the word of life. He bore witness to it. Are we doing the same? We know God. We know his word. We should also desire to take on the responsibility of declaring our witness of Christ. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for the example that, that John has set for us. Lord, he experienced you on a daily basis. He knew you. He knew what your word was. And Lord, he had no qualms about going out and sharing that with others. Lord, we pray that we will endeavour to make the word of life just a natural part of us. That Lord, that we will seek to, to know what your word says. And Lord, that we will have a heart to, to see other people to come into full fellowship with you and with the church. Lord, I just thank you for every person that's here. Lord, I pray that you are with them throughout the week and Lord, that they will draw closer to you. In Jesus' name, Amen.